Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Patricia Hampel at Scott County Library, Prior Lake. Patricia Hampel is one of those rare authors who holds perennial appeal with general audiences, but is also beloved by writers everywhere. Lyric, cerebral, and a boon companion at any stage of the writing journey, according to Plowshares. In her debut memoir and travelogue, A Romantic Education in 1981, Hampel explores her Czech heritage. Her equally poignant follow-up, Virgin Time in 1992, turns the spotlight to a Roman Catholic upbringing and the author's quest for spiritual fulfillment beyond religious dogma. The Florist Daughter in 2007 focuses on the relentlessly modest life of her hardworking parents. Hample, a three-time Minnesota Book Award winner and professor at the University of Minnesota, is back in 2018 with The Art of a Wasted Day. Like her other masterworks, The Art of a Wasted Day is difficult to pigeonhole as simple memoir. It is part travelogue and part spirited defense of leisure time in the face of our ever more busy and stressful modern lifestyle. It debuted in April. Well, thank you very much uh, for coming to Club Book. Um, I feel like the 18th century travelers used to say they had achieved Cathay or wherever they went. I feel like I have achieved Prior Lake. <laughs> and I'm very happy about it. Um, I, I live right by the cathedral in St. Paul. And uh, I kept driving. I had been on the road I, most recently in Iowa City where I gave a reading, and I felt like I was going back there while I was <laughs> driving. I thought, where am I going? You know? It's such a lovely town. And when I saw all these women walking around with drinks in their hands and hats, and I thought, hey, we're going to have a great time tonight. You know? But they were, they were going, as my mother would say, to a better place. So um, <laughs> anyway, um, I'm really delighted to be part of this uh, program and to be uh, I don't know why I'm quoting all these ancient writers like the 18th century and the 19th century when people would say, dear reader. And I feel um, that I, I am definitely in the presence of dear readers here and I'm very grateful to you for coming. Um, this is not the first time, not only that I've read a part of this book, of course authors go around reading to anybody who'll show up on the corner, <laughs> but um, for the first time in my life I did an audio book. I narrated the audiobook, and uh, they said uh, when they were putting it together, well, we will 
um, you know, we will, you'll have a director. I was in LA and we have a director. And I thought, a director? I, I mean, I wrote every word. And, <laughs> and, and I've given readings all my life, all my professional life. Well, I'm telling you, did I need a director? I don't think I got through a single page without the director, who was wonderful, stopping me and going back again. So um, I hope you're a little more forgiving. Um, and this book, um, this isn't quite a memoir, although what I'll be reading to you will have memoir stuff in it. And I'm kind of feeling like I'm going to stand like this, and I'm going to ignore that. Is that OK? Because I would not be able to look at you over there, and I want to be with all of you. Um, this book, The Art of the Wasted Day, started as um, really an attempt to think about leisure. In a way, I mean perversely to say, what is the work of leisure? What is the purpose of it? Um, and in the midst of it, that is to say of writing it, um, my husband died uh, two and a half years ago. And uh, so he ended up kind of taking over the book. It was one way to keep talking to him. Um, and so you won't actually get too much of that, but there's a little silver thread of that connection going through the book. But he does appear at one point in what I'm going to read to you. The book started out with um, an attempt to think about people in the past who'd been good leisure folk, you know, good lazy bones. And one of the ones that became the hero figure for me um, was Michel Montaigne, the great French essayist. And so he kind of is the, he's the figure I ultimately get to um, in, later, and, but I start with a bit of him. So I'm going to read, as you can see, I've kind of got this chopped up. I'm going to read for, I would say, not more than 40 minutes, and then it's your turn <laughs> to, uh, they told me we're supposed to be together for an hour. Um, you are allowed to leave beforehand if you wish to. Um, but um, then we'll have a chance for, for talking, and you don't have to have decorous questions. You can have protests if you like. Um, so I will begin. If you open this book, this is where it would begin. Sometime around 1535, a good 30 years before the French Wars of Religion, staked Catholic and Protestant heads on pikes around the Bordeaux countryside. In a gray stone castle deep in the wine country near Bergerac and Saint-Emilion, Pierre Montaigne, of a recently ennobled family, took the unprecedented step of hiring a lute player to awaken his child every morning. He was not an educated man, but he was an ardent father. He followed a theory, probably picked up during his military years in Italy, his son later wrote, that it troubles the tender brains of children to wake them in the morning with a start and to snatch them suddenly and violently from their sleep in which they are plunged much more deeply than we are. The lute followed Pierre Montaigne's boy, Michel, around the castle. I was never without a man to do this for me. Music, lyrical, wordless, was the soundtrack of his childhood, the groundbeat of his existence, an inducement to reverie. Though he reports that his nature was always gentle and tractable, Michel Montaigne, celebrated in our time as the first modern man, 
and in English departments as the father of the personal essay, the most amateur literary form, confesses that he was in fact so sluggish, lax, and drowsy that he was a poor student when lessons required serious application. No one, he said, could tear me from my sloth, not even to make me play. <laughs> he was otherwise engaged, floating on the charmed notes of that childhood lute, no doubt, lolling in the lap of leisure, adrift on fey melodies handed down from the Provençal lays of the troubadours. There was fugitive genius in this indolence. What I saw, I saw well, he says cannily, much later. And beneath this inert appearance nourished bold ideas and opinions beyond my years. Montaigne found his vocation early, companioned by music plucked on sheep gut as he went up and down the staircase of his father's cold house, the same stony place where, years later, he would return from a life at court to sit alone in a room with words to reveal his mind, or really to discover his mind. He divined early the value of being sluggish, lax, drowsy. He was not, as people now say, the first modern skeptic. He was the first modern daydreamer. So that's a little prelude. And then, I guess this is chapter one. It doesn't actually say chapter one, but that's what it is. It begins July afternoon under the shade of the beechnut tree. The tree belongs to Mr. Kinney. The shade is ours. It must be 1953 because the Magnavox has just been delivered from McGowan's TV and Appliance on Grand Avenue. It's not just for watching Lucy, my mother says, already mistrusting it. You're seeing history. She points to the first smudged image she allows us to see, the Koreans and Chinese and Americans signing their names in a big bible -y book. Peace, she says, settling in with her cigs, the chipped cloisonne ashtray at hand. An announcer drones from the glass box, murmuring names one after another. Men approach the heavy table to sign the book, each handing a fountain pen to the next. Mother taps her cig, against the little Chinese ashtray. A gift, she tells me, from her uncle who was a U.S. customs agent in San Francisco, half a world away from us in St. Paul. He got the ashtray when he broke an opium smuggling ring, she says proudly. He left the ashtray to her. Did he steal it, I ask? <laughs> she looks startled. Not exactly, she says uncertainly, turning back to the television. This is going to take a long time, the men handing the pen back and forth. History, it turns out, is boring. <laughs> so I come out here, throw myself on the ground where the feathers of the beech nut sway and tilt. The green filigree patterns the sky, light filters my face. It's hard, the ground, yet also soft, the sponge of lawn. I shut my eyes. The customs agent uncle, dead years before I was born, is standing on a San Francisco dock. Does he have a gun? He has a badge, that I see. 
he lifts the blue cloisonne ashtray out of a burlap bag, and a Chinese man has his hands up in the air. He has a long pigtail I recognize from the black and red lacquer tray mother brings up with soup and saltines when we're sick in bed. There must be a gun somewhere, but where is it? That scene fades and a fresh image appears, our next door neighbor, Mr. Kinney, who presents himself in the dark for no reason. There he is, filling my mind. Mr. Kinney is a widower. My mother says his wife has been dead forever. A hush of respect hovers over this fact. Because he is a widower and because he has money, he has a housekeeper. She doesn't like me. She wears a flower apron trimmed with rickrack, and her designation housekeeper makes her slightly sinister. Who has a housekeeper? Not normal people. Only Mr. Kinney, a widower without children but with money. <laughs> he owns the Coke factory near the zoo, a place of foreboding, heaps of blackened coal, acrid, smoking. They'll have to clean that up one day, my father says. Mr. Kinney sits in his glassed-in sun porch before dinner, sipping whiskey from a lowball glass. He drinks after dinner, too, slowly, meditatively. He reads, his old smooth head glowing under the floor lamp. He has decided against a television set, he informs my father, who has inquired if, with the windows open in summer, the sound of the Magnavox carries. We've all noticed the nasty bark of the laugh track. Nothing like real laughing. He's decided to stick with books, Mr. Kinney tells my father. He also listens to the radio as Halsey Hall calls the ball game in a voice juicy from a chewed cigar. <laughs> you can see Mr. Kinney leaning back in his sloping armchair, eyes closed, following the game. Another person who shuts his eyes to see. In the summer, you can hear the metallic chink of ice in the low ball glass. He drinks alone, my mother says. When you close your eyes, you see and hear things you didn't notice before, though they must have been there all along. It's not that you make things up. You notice things. Maybe that's a kind of making up? Hard to say. But it's all more real than history, blatting away in the living room where my mother stares at the gray glass, tapping her cig against the little saucer of the blue ashtray taken from the Chinese man with his hands above his head. Mother is still there as the pen passes from a Chinese man to an American, on and on to the next and the next. She's happy. She's watching peace occur in the wide world. Peace is vital to her. We had to drop the bomb, darling. It ended the war. It saved lives. But now, here, under the shade of the beech nut, I float past the customs agent and the Chinese smuggler over the disapproving face of Mr. Kinney's housekeeper, above mild Mr. Kinney himself swirling his oily drink on his sun porch. Day after day, night after night, during my endless girlhood, I float away like this. My father says Mr. Kinney takes his bourbon on the rocks. Mr. Kinney is slipping down a craggy cliffside under a shower of coal dust. He teeters off his sun porch, takes his bourbon on the rocks, drinks alone. There's something orchestral about all this, my father's voice, my mother's, the chink of ice, the echo chamber of that word, alone. A melodic moan struggles out of the sad souled vowel at the word's dead center, the sob at the core of alone.
Oh, the stagey hand on heart intonation at the beginning of the poems that great aunt Aggie recites. Oh, to be in England. Oh, for a beaker of the warm south. Bourbon on the rocks. Well, it's sad, darling. It's sad. He drinks alone. Oh, oh. Words are partly thoughts, but mostly their music deep down. Thinking itself is, perhaps orchestral, the mind conducting the world, conducting it, constructing it. I sense this instinctively. There is no language for this, not then, not even now. This inner glide, articulation of the wordless, plotless truth of existence. Life is not made up of stories, much as I adore them, Charlotte, Heidi, Caddy Woodlawn. Really, life is this. It's a float, my body a cloud, drifting along, effortless but aware, drifting over the world, seeing, passing along. Years later, peering across from the Kinney sun porch to ours, Mr. Kinney's housekeeper glimpses me roiling around on the couch with my first boyfriend and reports this to my grandmother who conveys the intelligence to my mother. She had a hippie boy out there with the vindicated face of a tattling teacher's pet. At eight, I don't yet see the hippie boys or the clasping and kissing, but already I recognize the look on the housekeeper's face. It is the aggrieved visage of the unloved, thwarted and denied. The flaccid cheeks slip downward, the sour line of the lips tightens, that sharp eye on the prowl, passing from the back door to the trash can with her bag of refuse, frowning at me, lolling under the shade of her employer's beechnut tree. She's a busybody. She recognizes me too for what I am, her natural enemy. <laughs> a girl up to no good, lazy my days away, conducting music no one else hears, a time waster, a daydreamer. Which poses a problem. In a few months we will make our first confession. We have reached the age of reason. Sister says we now know the difference between good and evil. She has given us the buff-colored Baltimore Catechism and directed us to the examination of conscience at the back to help us prepare for our first whispered recitation in the basement of St. Luke's. The Ten Commandments are listed, each with its complement of sins and occasions of sin which are to be avoided. I have located disobedience, number four, and lying, number eight, as my province as well as the diffuse, unkind gossip, an all-purpose sin that seems to belong to no particular commandment, but exists as an aura around all human relations. Then I reached the combined list of sins and occasions of sin for commandments 9 and 10, where all the coveting goes on. <laughs> there, shockingly, without explanation, is the word daydreaming. <laughs> Busted. <laughs> An official sin ratified by the Baltimore Catechism. I stare at it, disbelieving. To refuse to admit to a sin listed in the examination of conscience is a disobedience more profound, this I know, than the trivialities against my mother and father I've been toting up for presentation to Father Kennedy in the little curtain box in St. Luke's basement. A bad confession is the worst sin of all. 
mortal. <laughs> but daydreaming, this effortless flight of the mind, I'm thunderstruck. Yet also oddly confirmed, a faint bell chimes within. Of course the imagination is up to no good. You know that. You were born knowing that. It's the real, the true occasion of sin. Under the beech nut tree, leaves swishing the sound of the oily sluice, chink, 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 alone on the rocks, oh, alone, but connected to everything, conducting the unheard harmony that is the truest music, the sweetness of it, lolling under the filtered light of he heaven. You possess everything that passes through the mind. It's divinity. That must be the sweetness. That must be the sin. I don't just mentally reject this sin. I trala my way past it. A higher editorial power takes over. I unsee it, unread it. That's part of this daydream paradise. Unthinking my own thinking. I excise the word from the Baltimore Catechism from my mind. I'm gripped by refusal. It's a form of loyalty. I'm never letting go of this. <laughs> the tendency to float, to depart, to rest, this power resides within me. It's right in there, jammed into the space where I've been taught conscience also resides inside. Listen to your inner voice, children. It will guide you right here, sister says, not reaching up to her wimpled head, but touching a pale hand to her obscure bosom under the gloomy tarp of her habit. Right here, that's where truth is. You always know if you consult here. No one questions, I still have not questioned, that there is an inner voice to be heard. I don't hesitate. I throw my lot with the occasion of sin. I already know or believe, which comes to the same thing in my Catholic worldview, that daydreaming doesn't make things up. It sees things, claims things, twirls them around, takes a good look, possesses them, embraces them, makes something of them, makes sense or music, how restful it is, how full of motion, my first paradox. I couldn't care less what it's called, it's pure pleasure, infinite delight. For this, a person goes to hell. Okay then. That's very Minnesota, okay then. <laughs> though, I don't know, uh, though I don't yet know it, though sister has her hand on her breast, this is what is called the life of the mind. It's what I want to do. It's where I want to be, right here. Fast forward more than 40 years, and what's become of the life of the mind? Hand on heart, the inner voice still murmuring? I've taken my place, middle seat, my husband on the aisle, a plump woman already seated by the window. I fasten my seat belt, low and tight as instructed. My husband takes my right hand, gives it a squeeze, opens his book. The plane taxis forward. The woman next to me is looking with pleasant curiosity out the window. Blue skies, no wind. We lift off, levitating at a rather sharp angle without shimmy or rattle or bobble. A confident plane. We're up cleanly at a sheer slant, and I'm dying. <laughs> it is impossible to breathe in this canister hurling itself on high. The thing is not properly pr pressurized. No one can breathe in here. We will all die or 
Another possibility occurs in the same instant. We may land safely, but we'll be a plane full of brain-damaged droolers, <laughs> alive but gone, gone. I have picked up on this truth sooner than the others, but didn't teachers often say I was quick? In a moment, these poor souls will be leaping from their places, madly clawing the air. At least I will die with dignity. My eyes fasten on a hopelessly unaware man farther forward on the aisle, calmly sitting with his newspaper open. I wait for him to leap up, hurl the paper aside, clutch his throat. He won't be dying with dignity, but I will. I sit still, frozen in my dignity. The woman by the window has taken my left hand. She's stroking it. You're all right, she's saying. I'm a labor and delivery nurse, and you're all right. Does she think I'm pregnant? I'm over 50. <laughs> you're all right, she keeps saying. Very annoying sing-song. Look at your hand. I look. There it is, and her hand stroking mine. See, it isn't blue. If you were dying, your hand would be blue. It would? I realize I'm gasping loudly raggedly. I haven't been dying with dignity. I have been making, am still making weird gagging sounds. Desperate, wild. My husband looks alarmed. He has taken my other hand. I feel bound and I rip my hands away from these deluded hand holders who somehow are managing to breathe in this airless cylinder. The labor and delivery nurse hands me the air sickness bag from the seat pocket. Breathe into this, she says, commanding now, not gentle. Put the bag to your mouth, bend your head, breathe in, out, breathe, out, out, deep, out. This I do. You're having a panic attack, she says. You aren't dying. What does she know? Everything in me tells me I'm dying. I'm a writer. I trust my instincts. I live by my wits. But I do as she says, breathing deep into the bag. No one is leaping around. That gets through to me. Only my husband looks bug-eyed, leaning toward me, but no longer touching me because I have batted him away. <laughs> You're not dying, the nurse repeats with irritating certainty. You've got too much oxygen in your system. Breathe out, deep, deep out. We'll get that carbon dioxide level up. You're having a panic attack, she says again. She pats my leg briskly, not unkindly. She's seen this before. She hits the call button. I'm given a glass of water, drink. Breathe, drink, live to see another day, live to tell the tale. Better, the nurse says pleasantly after the water is gone, a pat on the leg. Better? Not really. Not dying, but not better. My husband is thanking her profusely. He's holding my hand. I allow this, my cold meat patty in his beautiful, warm, dry hand. His beautiful hand I've always loved. I love it again, which is a sign I'm not dying. The nurse has turned back to the window, enjoying the bed of pillowy clouds we rest upon. That was 10 years ago. It took almost two weeks before I could breathe unconsciously again. For days, I took deep, greedy breaths, intakes of air full of gratitude, but not entirely persuaded. Some inner monitor kept checking. Yes, breathing, still breathing. I had struggled mightily with a fierce angel, a muscular, dark devil. True, he had won, but I had been spared, left heaving on the roadside where he, we had contended, left to resume my fate. A panic attack? But there had been no panic, not even a tingle of apprehension. I went from life to death, 
not what I thought or imagined was death, but the absolute sensation of extinction without a signal, as if I'd been hit from behind by a Mack truck as I walked down a perfectly ordinary street, mugged by death. How I slept those weeks afterward. A slumberous swoon in the afternoon, I, who was never a napper, and all night long, dreamless, content, I felt profoundly convalescent. It was heavenly. I yawned a lot, huge, open-mouthed yawns. I couldn't yawn enough. I was tireless in my yawning. I had not rested like this since. Out of the deep folds of childhood, the beech nut tree wagged its scissored leaves above me and faded away again. And then I returned to what I thought of as my life. And what is that, my life? Fifty years more, and the life of the mind lolling under the beech nut has long since morphed into a scrum of tasks jittering down the day. Life conceived and lived as a to-do list. This is the problem. I sense I'm not alone. Fretful, earnest, ambitious strivers. Mm -hmm. We take no comfort in existence unfurling easefully, as God intended, my mother speaking, a middling Midwesterner who knew how to let things unfold without rush, her head wreathed with vagueness, the smoke of her cig circling upward. For the worker bee, life is given over to the grim satisfaction of striking a firm line through a task accomplished, onto the next and the next. Check, check, done and done. It explains and solves nothing to call this workaholism. Whatever happened to the Roman concept first encountered in intermediate Latin, otium cum dignitate, honorable leisure, the peace that passeth understanding that the classical world held as its ideal, the ease I'd touched under the beech nut tree, not knowing it would disappear, fade, elude me, when the time came to stop throwing myself on the grass and looking up at the passing clouds. Never mind the necessity of a slave class to keep that odium basking on the secluded hillside villa portico under the shaded grape arbor. Still, where is the ideal, at least, if not that way of life? And what about Montaigne in his tower, retiring from public life to muse about how to die? Or was it how to live? Whichever. Put that on the list. Read Montaigne. So many books I keep meaning to read. I move the titles from one to-do list to another. I don't even bother listing Proust anymore. I've read the opening pages about the Madeleine cookie soaked in Lindenflower tea so many times. I've come to think In Search of Lost Time as a short lyric. I get the picture, if not the story. I have time for vignettes, but not for narrative arcs. I start a novel, but keep breaking off to check my iPhone. iPhone, indeed, the busyness of me, myself, and I. I've already read enough Montaigne, even taught him the art of the personal essay, English 5610, to know I'd like to waste my life the way he did, taking up one conundrum after another, plucked out of idiosyncratic curiosity, how he wrote his way around a subject for a while, dropped it, picked up another, on cannibals, on experience, on this, on that. He called them essays, but he didn't mean a freshman theme. He used the word to show he wasn't a professional literary man, that he was just tossing off unbidden thoughts for his own interest. Accidentally, he invented a literary genre, the one I practice. 
Yet, even before the essays, before my work, as I vainly call it, I keep composing to-do lists, my most recent. Return overdue books, mammal appointment, mustard, garlic, milk, skim, bananas, date of Thanksgiving this year, letters of rec, Greg, Jeff, Susan, who else? Blurbs, three, actually read the books to the end. Flowers to GK, mother's death or was it his father, ask Ellen. Ants in kitchen, traps, poison, hardware store. Fish oil, helps against aging, Sue. Overcoats to Goodwill, check phrasebook for G, leaves Monday. Memoir manuscript from that Montreal paralytic, bottom right pile, read, respond. Furnace inspection, ticking sound. Rose wilt, ask Joan, Judith, check, send a check to the refugee sanctuary, how much? Geranium, spring arrive ferns for the graves, deadline, dentist, dish soap, dog food. This organization or attempt at organization is meant to sweep away all the dumb tasks of the day so that real life can be lived. Real life? What comes after dog food? <laughs> Onward to the night, which is to say insomnia, cell phone by the bedside table, the mind drilling away with yet more frantic interior list making. Don't forget, remember to, have you, did you? Whole decades can go this way and have not just in domestic detail, but a wash in the brackish flotsam of endeavor, failure and success, responsibility and reward. My work, as I say with foolish vanity, deadlines piled upon deadlines, that devilishly apt word, deadline, the heart seizing as if shot, hands ringing for reprieve, a week, a day, but delivering, always delivering, you can count on me. That, in fact, is the problem. I never learned to follow Nancy Reagan's one piece of good advice, just say no. <laughs> Even with the arch refusal to friend anybody or to tweet abstemiously in 140 characters from the Baroque song sheet of my jammed mind, even so, the daydream life, that prairie of possibility cherished from childhood and beyond that into my delicious time-wasting youth, all that has been junked up with, with what? Reality, life as it really is and must be for an adult, reprimand to self. You dare to complain about a life rich in tasks and duties and pleasures, rich with meaning, daily life, work you chose and professed to love, domestic detail, the call and reply of other people's lives, the beloveds mixed in there with everybody else who has a claim on you, the sheer wants and requests always heard as demands, the gnats of need buzzing, deadlines delivering, always. Not to mention the weights of the past hanging like bells gonging from your wrists. Memory is a tough boss, a micromanager sending too many memos. Even the realization coming as a surprise, the shock of how happy you were in love for years, how long you were given to have and to hold, even though he's gone now, the bell of memory, the beautiful hand holding yours, dust now. We'll get to that. You're complaining? It's called a full life, a good life, a lucky life. 
the friends it has brought, wild humor, some bright lights, charms and delights, long nights, early mornings, invitations, travel. Lucky you, as I keep saying. Still, the sense of a life being littered rather than lived. Life, if you're lucky, is divided into thirds, my father used to say. Youth, middle age, and you look good. <laughs> the dawn of that third stage winks. It is just cutting me in the eye as I lift my hand against its rise. It isn't simply that at this point more life is behind me, behind any middle-aged person than lies ahead. Middle-aged, who am I kidding? An interviewer asked Alice Monroe, when she turned 60, how she felt to be middle-aged. Middle-aged, she said. Who do you know who's 120? <laughs> so it's not just about aging, but by the time you've worked long enough, hard enough, real life, which insists on being capitalized as if it were a personage with a proper name and a right to barge into this rental unit called your life, begins to reveal itself as something other than effort, other than accomplishment, Real life wishes to be left to its own purposeless devices. This isn't sloth, it isn't laziness, it isn't even exhaustion. It is a late arriving awareness of consciousness existing for its own purpose, rippling with contentment and curiosity. One's own idiosyncrasy reveals itself as a pleasure without other value but golden, amusing, integrity, hard won, and now at its leisure, hand on heart, this life of the mind, lolling, tending to life's real business. This latter stage of existence suggests that the ultimate task, the real to-do, is to waste your life in order to find it. Who said that? Or something like that? Jesus? Buddha? Bob Dylan? <laughs> Somebody who knew what's what. <laughs> Even the search for timelessness happens in history. Mine is the first year of the notorious baby boom. You're a boomer, as if this generation were named for the bomb, the mid-century annihilator that was burst about the time I was conceived. My mother murmurs again from her whirlwind of cigarette smoke. We had to drop the bomb, darling. It ended the war. It saved lives. We got all the good stuff. The post-war hope and determination of our Depression-era parents was piled upon us, and we've been burning it up, the fossil fuel of earlier generations we spent without a care. No college debt, the liberal arts, a reasonable study for four years or six or eight. We had a preposterously long sense of our own youthfulness and a limitless sense of our choices. Indulgences galore, many certainties. Make love, not war. The personal is political which we called rights and ideals. We were even right about some of it, as if being right were the same as being real. But now the boomers are approaching the other side. Not death necessarily, though the time has begun when no one will say we were cut down too early. <laughs> Not death, but we're reaching the other side of striving, past ambition, good luck over there in pasture land. What a surprise to discover it's all about leisure, apparently, this fugitive real life abandoned all those years ago to the limitless capacity for toil, which is a line from Fitzgerald that I quote earlier but didn't read to you. What a hard worker you are, taken always taken as a compliment. You can count on me, smiling, deadlines met, always. 
this particular battle between striving and serenity may be distinctly American. The struggle between toil and real life is a legacy we cannot reject or deny, coming to us as a birthright, the way a Frenchman, to, a Frenchman expects to have decent wine at a reasonable price in the whole month of August on vacation. <laughs> Maybe it goes all the way back to the Declaration of Independence, our founding document, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How proud I've always been through the years of war protesting, the radical this and the progressive that, to think of those words. What luck to be born into this buoyant heritage. What country was ever founded on the idea of happiness? Crazy, good crazy. We aren't ideologues with a five-year plan for civic betterment. We address happiness individually, conceive of it as an intensely personal project. Each of us busy about our own bliss. Love that, love it still. But a canker forms on the rose. That unlikely word happiness charmed me, made me proud to be an American, not just for my own sake, but because everyone was enjoying to think about a personal project of delight. Even if it couldn't be accomplished, of course happiness is an illusion, still a beautiful one. I'll pledge allegiance to it. But happiness is the only word in the Declaration of Independence triad that doesn't stand alone. Happiness is not like life and liberty a given. Happiness is the, in the American credo is a job. It has to be pursued. Your fault, sucker, if you can't nab it for yourself. I was mistaken. The essential American word isn't happiness, it's pursuit. So how about just giving up, giving up the habit of struggle? Maybe it's a matter of giving over to what? Perhaps what an earlier age called the life of the mind. That phrase I fastened on to describe the sovereign self at ease, at home in the world, when I decided to embrace the key occasion of sin, the daydream. Happiness redefined as looking out the window and taking things in, not pursuing them taking in whatever is out there, seeing how it beckons, or letting it go, on and on, out of range, a cloud passing, changing shape, but still a cloud. Loafing and inviting your soul is not a prudent business plan, not a life plan, not even a recognizably American project. But it does begin to look a little like happiness, the kind that comes to you unbidden, Stay put and let the world show up, or go out there and be a flaneur wandering along. Which is it? I'm looking out the window. I'm reading Walt Whitman. I'm reading Montaigne. Also, I'm taking the dog for a long walk. She's nosing our way forward. The book is, um, have you ever noticed how all writers, all authors of a book refer to their book as the book, as if there's only the one, you know, it's like <laughs> the book. Um, anyway, um, this book is uh, ultimately divided uh, narratively into two questions. How do you achieve that feeling that I've tried to describe uh, and, and, uh, and narrate? How do you do it? Do you stay put in your room, you know, just, you know, and, and let the world come at you and just lead a quiet life? Or do you go out on the road and, and seek it? And so uh, that's what happens in this book. I end up going on a search looking for some of these characters who were great leisure artists. Um, and then eventually I 
I consider the whole idea of staying. And finally, at the very end, um, <clears throat> I reprise a boat trip in the old cabin cruiser my husband and I had that, that he and I took down the Mississippi River. So um, in the end, there's this quality. I'm kind of giving the, if there is a plot to this, I'm giving it away. There's sort of a sense that, oh, you can go and you can stay, you know, both. But I have to work my way to that. So that's sort of what the book is. Now you don't need to read it, right? <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> and, and don't ever say to a, a writer, um, I read your book last night. Because for most of us, it takes so many years. You, can, you, took, you read it in one night. <laughs>With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Patricia Hampel and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if Hampel has gotten better at living a life of leisure after writing this book. No, of course not. I run around like a chicken with my head cut off. I mean, I mean, one of the lines that comes up in here more than once is my husband says, darling, you're the last person to write about leisure. Um, you're a workaholic. But I think that that's one of the things that happens. You write out of your weakness, not out of your strength. You know, you don't write about what you have or what you know, but what you wish, you know. And I think, you know, it isn't a book that I would have written, you know, in my... Well, I didn't even write it in my 60s. I wrote a little of it in my 60s, but I mean, it's a book of my 70s. I mean, it's, it's, it's a book that you write when you're older and you're thinking, you mean I'm just going to keep on this gerbil wheel? You know? <laughs> Our next question is what Hample means when she says she writes out of her weakness. This is, this is almost a cliche, but a lot of writers will say, I don't write about what I know, I, I write about what I want to know. Or they'll say, um, I write... I don't know what I know or what I think until I write it. You know, that, that's sort of a, a thing. Um, and I think there's truth to that, but at a deeper level, I think that if you know something, there's no urgency, there's no pulse in it, there's no kind of uh, need to know, there's no search. And so that's why I think you, you're, you have a kind of magnetic pull towards some, something that you don't know what it's about. And people tend to think if you write memoir, which is the, the genre that I'm kind of saddled with, although I've written fiction, I've written poetry, I've written opera libretto, I mean, you know, I've done a lot of different things. It all comes out of the same hopper as far as I'm concerned. But um, people think, oh, you're writing about what you remember. Actually, no, you're oftentimes writing you're, t you're, you're more like an archaeologist picking up a shard and looking at it and thinking, oh, it's an interesting flower kind of pattern there. I wonder if that was a bowl or a cup or, and then you begin writing from the shard. So it's, oh. so it's, it's, it's that desire. It's a combination of not knowing and a desire to know. So that's why, um, you know, if people say, well, do you make stuff up? Well, if you're lying, bad. You know, don't do that in memoir. But if you are seeking and the reader knows that's what you're doing, the reader is in that enterprise with you, there is no lie 
because we all do that. I wonder if my aunt had an affair with the milkman. I mean, he <laughs> was there. Whenever I went over, he, he was there for coffee, and they were so friendly with each other. I wonder, you know, so you're right, that kind of, you know, there's a kind of um, sand that makes the pearl. When I started writing, I didn't sit around thinking, I think I'll be a memoirist, you know? I mean, A, nothing had ever happened to me. What was I going to write about? And, <laughs> and two, um, memoir, I thought, was you had to be famous or have slept with somebody who was famous or, you know, something <laughs> like that. And no, I, I didn't qualify, so I didn't quite understand how. But what I ended up writing was um, things that became called memoir. And we sort of changed the genre in the last 30 years. It is now. I would say an even early or a midlife enterprise, and it is the enterprise of sort of like Dante starting, you know, stopping in, in, in the middle of life in a dark wood and not having lost his way. It's that quality that causes people to do it. But what, hap what you said that's really interesting is it's not a story just. It's the intersection between narrative story and essay reflection. It's thinking about stuff. So the essay becomes its own story. You could call it the story of thought, or, or maybe better to say the story of thinking. That is certainly what Montaigne was doing. He wanted to just say what was happening as it was passing through, you know, up here. We think, yeah, well, so everybody does that. No, it was a radical thing to do. Because he was writing at a time when, uh, you know, really the novel didn't even exist, as we think. It was the uh, drama theater was the was the main thing, or or poetry. Another audience member asked Hample how she communicates a life of leisure to her students and younger generations who seem to be always in motion. Well, I, you know, I don't talk about my work with the students, so I wouldn't have, you know, talked to them about this, but. I try to get them to see that it, it's a long, it, life is long if you're lucky, and books take a long time. We tend to think that, and this is the, maybe the biggest thing that a, a fledgling writer of any age has to come to, we come to writing because we fell in love with reading. But the weird thing is about reading is, geez, here's page one. And when I turn the page, there's page two and three. It just keeps going. Even a bad book moves forward <laughs> in some way. When you're writing them, it doesn't work that way. You may have written something that is the first page you wrote, but it may be half of page 46, and the rest of it you're going to throw out. And the ability to, to understand that s slows you down. I will also tell you the best piece of advice I ever got about deadlines from my first editor and my oldest literary friend, Garrison Keeler. He was the editor of our student magazine at the University of Minnesota, and he hired me to be the associate editor. And I've been edited by the best in the business. There was nobody has surpassed him at age 22. That's my editor. I, I was 18, he was 22. And I said one day, oh, I'm, I'm so far behind. I'm, I'm, I'm so far behind on my deadline. He said, oh, you're behind then you have to slow down. <laughs> and so I try to, to uh, purvey that, that idea, you know,
just be with your mind, be with your consciousness, be with an image as long as it takes. I, my, one of my favorite advice words to my students is linger, linger. You're rushing. When I used to teach fiction to undergraduates, I only teach graduate. I'm coming to the end of my career. I would be as a teacher. I'd be done in the fall, my last class. But anyway, when I used to teach undergraduates, you know, they they want to make sure something's happening because they've heard, you know, fiction has got to have conflict, you know. And so I would say nobody can die. You can't kill off anybody until Thanksgiving, <laughs> because they would say. John entered the room, Mary was at the table, and she shot him. Then they knew something had happened. And I'd say, no, nothing has happened. You know, just describe what Mary's eating, just, you know, that kind of thing. So slow, everything has to slow down. This question asker inquires if Patricia Hampel still ice skates, as she did when she was a child. I don't skate anymore because I'm afraid of my knees. <laughs> but I'm, I mean, I'm, I go to the gym, I go to PT, you know, I, you know, I, I work on my back. I mean, I, I do all that. But no, I don't skate anymore. I finally gave it up. My brother uh, was in a senior hockey uh, league. Uh, he's four years older until he was about, I don't know, 72. And he, he was a beautiful skater too. And he quit, he said, because he realized he was more worried about falling than skating, and I thought, yeah, okay. Our next question is about the creation of her book art. Peter Cease, who is the uh, artist of this magical cover, uh, he and I are friends um, and have been for many years. He's a Czech, now American artist, and most of you, if you know, how many of you know him through his children's books? Uh, most of you. That's So I'm borrowing a children's book artist uh, for this. Um, I said to them when they were doing the book, I, uh, they're very nice and at Viking and, and uh, let me, you know, I have a say-so. And I said, I do not want a woman in a hammock or I don't want, you know, some woman, you know, lying there reading or something. I said, I want uplift. I want buoyancy. I want, and I said, I'd really like, what I'd really, really like is um, a hot air balloon. Well, they gave me this postmodern kind of minimalist thing. It looked so weird, and I thought, no, I can't stand that. So I sent them a bunch of pictures that I'd gotten off the internet. I'm not good at this. And my agent, God lover, also, I might say, my maid of honor at my wedding 30 years ago, uh, <laughs> sort of an all-purpose friend, um, <laughs> she knew Peter, and, and she found this more whimsical one. And then my best literary friend, a wonderful novelist and essayist too, but uh, Lynn Freed. Any of you know Lynn Freed's work? Oh, go for it. F-R-E-E-D. Anyway, she said, make sure when you have such a whimsical cover that you have a very severe typeface. <laughs> so it just doesn't look like, you know, you're just kind of... And so I think that was really smart. And I asked them for that, and they did it. I think they aced it. I'm very happy with it. Yeah. When we sold this book, I hadn't written that much of it. And I said to my agent, couldn't we just, I mean, everybody adores the title. Couldn't we just sell it with nothing in it? And just let people, you know, <laughs> no, go back to your computer, get going. <laughs> Our last question of the night 
comes from an audience member wondering if there's anything particularly Czechoslovakian about Hampel's writing. Uh, no. <laughs> I was going to try to gin something up there, but I, I, I don't think so. I mean, you know, we are what we're made of and what we come from. I mean, there may be some of that. I mean, I wrote my Czech book during the Cold War. Um, I first went to Czechoslovakia, as it was then, in uh, 1975. Garrison had got me a job at Minnesota Public Radio. I think he was quite unhappy when they, they gave me it was a very different place, very small, and he had a tiny office, and he worked from the middle of the night, practically, until he was done at 9, and I came in at 9, so I took over, and I don't think he liked it. That you know, I was, It was great that he got me the job, but he wasn't too keen, maybe, about sharing the office. At any rate, um, I quit that job in order, because I was 29 years old, and I hadn't published a book. <gasps> so I, I quit my job, and I went over there to find a book, and I found one. I wrote Romantic Education, and that was very Czech in the sense that I was pursuing that identity and pursuing that hole through the rabbit hole of the Cold War, you know, on, on the other side of the looking glass. Um, but I, I wouldn't say so. I mean, if you were to read um, um, that book, of course, you'd think Czech, Czech, Czech. And the Spillville, yes, I wrote Spillville too, which was about going down to Spillville, Iowa, to look for Dvorak. Uh, with the artist Stephen Sorman. <clears throat> but if you were to read Virgin Time, you wouldn't really know that I was Czech, I don't think. I mean, because that, but if you read a Romantic Education, you wouldn't know I was Catholic. I mean, it's sort of like you, you kind of, you have to create a character in memoir. It's not as if when you write the letter I, you're there. You have to create an identity um, for that character you're using for that book. For instance, what I read to you here, a lot of it was from a child's point of view. But the rest of the book is, you know, not from a child's point of view. Um, it's, it's from an adult, well, what passes for an adult's point of view. <laughs> that wraps up our Scott County Library Prior Lake event with Patricia Hampel. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Emily Fridlin at Ramsey County Library, Roseville. Emily Fridlin's opus, acclaimed 2017 Man Booker Prize finalist, History of Wolves, straddles a line between thriller and coming-of-age novel. NPR calls it as beautiful and as icy as the Minnesota woods where it's set, and its author, a singular talent. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubBookMN. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.